Hello, everyone. My name is Maria Thomas, and I work for Allianz Research, the global team of economists, strategists, sector advisors, and foresight experts of the Allianz Group, led by Ludovic Subron. Welcome to Tomorrow, a podcast where we'll be talking about our latest analyses of economic and capital market developments, as well as our views on trends affecting risk management. Let's get started. For the past few months, the global economy has faced a worrying shortage of semiconductors, a component that industries such as IT and automotive have become dependent on. In response, governments in China and Europe have recently made semiconductor autonomy a priority. But is this really an effective strategy? And what could it mean for the industry overall? Let's find out with Senior Sector Advisor Aurélien Dutrois. Hello Aurélien, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Maria. So firstly, can you explain for our listeners why we've been facing semiconductor shortages of late? Uh, the starting point was the COVID-19 outbreak when client industries, the car industry in particular, mm-hmm. cut their purchases of semiconductors because they expected car sales to slow down uh, in the light of a pandemic. Uh, they did, but not as much as expected and not for as long as expected. Mm-hmm. So what happened was that uh, chip manufacturers took good note of falling orders from the car industry. And uh, logically, they relocated their capacities to markets where they felt demand was more resilient. So uh, the, the computer or the video game markets, for instance. Mm-hmm. What happened is that when car sales picked up in Q3 2020, car makers placed new orders only to find out that chip makers had very little spare capacity left. Because meanwhile, demand for consumer electronics boomed. So uh, chip makers did what they could to adapt to rising demand from the automotive sector, but manufacturing capacities were already saturated, resuming production takes time, and uh, the very manufacturing of chips takes months. One of the reasons why uh, the automotive or the industrial sectors in particular were hit so bad is that they are given lower priority compared to chips going to smartphones or to computers. The reason for this is that they are less profitable to manufacture because they rely on technologies uh, that are pretty mature. That was for the first wave, let's say, uh, of the shortages. And now there's a second wave ongoing, which uh, happened a bit later when demand for consumer electronics showed no signs of uh, slowing down. To give you an idea, uh, smartphone sales should top 1 billion and a half units this year. That's up 10% from last year. And uh, computer sales, 360 million units. That's up 20% from last year. So that's pretty much about it for the bigger bigger picture. There are sub-stories. There are some uh, additional factors like a winter storm in Texas or a fire in a major factory in Japan. But the underlying issue is really this deep supply demand mismatch that was caused by the pandemic. Right. And so why why does these why do these semiconductor shortages really matter for the global economy today? Why is everyone talking about them? Uh, it matters in two uh, different but related ways. Uh, the first uh, the first impact is that we are seeing production disruption in industries where shortages are particularly acute. Mm-hmm. That's the number one problem really for companies. It takes only one missing part even if it costs 50 cents to stop production, and this is limiting production of everything from cars, uh, washing machines, smartphones, video game consoles, uh, and so on. That's bad for the top line of companies because they are missing sales opportunities. Uh, when you don't have the right product at the right moment, this is what uh, this is what's happening. And the moment is good because demand is there. 
uh, it's also bad for profitability because their assets are not running at their full capacities and it's bad for cash flows too right. uh, because they are left with intermediate goods that cannot be turned uh, into finished goods. Uh, the second impact is that cheap manufacturers are uh, taking advantage of the situation to increase cheap prices. And uh, what is re a bit reassuring is that for most industries, chips are not a major input in terms of costs. So uh, cheap prices going up is not a major issue. At least it's nothing compared to missing out sales. Uh, but it does contribute to this wider trend uh, that we are witnessing, this trend of uh, input prices going up. I'm thinking of uh, energy and metal commodities in particular. Okay. And so in this context, we, we recently looked at this idea of semiconductor autonomy, which is you know something that you have written has become a bit of a priority for both China and the Eurozone. Can you give us first a sense of China's strategy for semiconductors and you know what, what are the consequences of China's strategy domestically and for the global economy? Yeah. Uh, the one striking figure to bear in mind and to illustrate uh, what Chinese ambitions are about is that uh, China imported more than $375 billion of semiconductors in 2020. It's actually the largest single item of its uh, import bill. It's bigger than energy, for instance. Mm. You, it, it is fair to say you can say that China imports more chips than it imports oil. That's uh, quite, uh, quite a striking figure. So there is this strong and natural incentive for China to try to substitute imports by local production uh, this would not only improve China's trade balance, but also generate uh, high-value-added activity in the country. And that's part of their ambition to become uh, a major player, uh, not just as an uh, assembling hub for electronics, but a major player in high technology manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, this would also help China uh, reduce some strategic vulnerabilities because semiconductors are used in uh, potentially sensitive industries like the military or the aerospace industries. And China doesn't have what it takes yet to manufacture the most advanced chips uh, they are on the market. A major step uh, forward uh, in this respect was made uh, when China unveiled its Made in China 2020 plan. That was uh, in 2015. And... Uh, China introduced a mix of uh, funding, tax breaks, lower import taxes on semiconductor machine tools to encourage domestic semiconductor production. Those measures, they worked. There are many, many uh, competitive Chinese firms growing fast, but none of them has yet become a dominant player. Okay. And so uh, China tried to assign uh, autonomy targets that were not realistic from the start. They wanted domestic production to cover 40% of their needs within five years and 70% by 2020. Uh, 2025, sorry. And uh, six years later, now, uh, China is believed to cover only 16% of its needs by domestic by domestic production. So they are really, really uh, still far from uh, from target. But that's not a, that, that's not surprising. We, we know from the past examples of uh, South Korea or Taiwan, for instance, that it takes decades to build a competitive chip industry. Right. And uh, this idea of autonomy is to be taken with a pinch of salt. You no country in the world is autonomous in the chip industry, not even the U.S., uh, where, where semiconductors were uh, invented. If you look along the value chain, mm -hmm. uh, the average uh, chip, the average uh, integrated circuit uh, relies on a silicon wafer that is generally produced in Japan, transformed in Taiwan or South Korea, that uses American, Japanese or European machinery, relying on Japanese or South Korean chemicals, designed by European or American companies, and 
this uh, is then assembled into final goods in China to be exported globally. So in general, what happens in the industry is that both companies and countries focus on one small part of a value chain mm -hmm. where they believe they have a comparative or competitive advantage. And uh, this idea of greater autonomy makes sense, but the idea of uh, complete autonomy is not realistic. You may have chips made locally, but you will always need foreign technology. Right. And so that's that's interesting because the Eurozone also has established some ambitious policy targets, right? Can you explain maybe for our listeners some of the European Commission's targets when it comes to semiconductors? Uh, yes, uh, of course. Um, here again, it's largely about restoring some sense of, uh, of autonomy. The European Commission has set two main targets. The first target is to bring Europe's share in global semiconductor production to 2020 by 2030. And uh, the second is to be capable of producing chips using some of the industry's most advanced manufacturing technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, as you mentioned, this is pretty ambitious. Uh, given Europe owns 6% of semiconductor manufacturing capacity, captures 8% of global semiconductor sales, and that the most advanced facilities uh, for manufacturing chips in Europe use technologies that are about 10 year old. So mm -hmm. in other words, that would mean doubling or tripling Europe's clout uh, in the race, and in a race where it's rather late compared to Asia or North America. So much like China, I guess it's better to forget about precise targets and keep the general idea that Europe is too seeking to become uh, less reliant on foreign technologies. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that leads to my next question, which is, you know, what are the consequences of these policies for, you know, the region and for the wider global economy? Um, the impact of uh, China's drive into semiconductors is uh, in the short run pretty positive. It's uh, obviously a blessing for Chinese semiconductor companies mm. because they'll keep enjoying abundant financing, tax breaks, lower import duties, and so on. And uh, a growing Chinese manufacturing base is a major opportunity for foreign companies uh, supplying manufacturing equipment and technologies uh, to China. We estimated in a paper that this will generate up to $100 billion in sales by uh, 2025. Uh, for Europe, it's clear, too, that uh, European companies will receive more support in the coming decade. Mm -hmm. uh, the European Commission is talking about uh, spending about 20% of the recovery and resilience facility uh, for, Europe's, uh, digital, uh, for Europe's digital transition. So we are talking about 150 billion euros. So that's quite something. And a fraction of this sum will support the European semiconductor industry. Um, much like China, I think investment will take time to pay off. I think it's it's nearly impossible for Europe to catch up with uh, dominant Asian or American firms in markets that are already uh, that are already dominated, like uh, advanced chip manufacturing or designing computer and telecom chips for smartphones. Those markets are oligopolies, and they are built on decades of investment. So it wouldn't quite make sense to try to compete there. It's more likely that European investment will seek to consolidate and expand uh, European leadership where it exists. And I'm thinking of uh, automotive and industrial semiconductors, for instance, mm -hmm. and to uh, stimulate investment in next generation technologies. Okay. And so just to conclude our conversation, tell us, you know, what, what does the future hold for the semiconductor industry, say, in 10 years? Um, most certainly a few hundred billion dollars in additional sales per year. <laughs> the, the industry will generate more than $500 billion in sales this year for the first time. And uh, it has a track record of growing by about 8% per year mm -hmm. uh, since the 1990s. So uh, since the 1990s, we have seen uh, the rise of a personal computer, then the rise of a mobile phone, then the smartphone, and more 
recently uh, the cloud computing revolution. The number one growth driver, I think, uh, for this decade is the Internet of Things. It's uh, this idea of bringing sensing, computing, and connectivity features to a growing base of devices. So uh, fridges, cars, agricultural machinery, machine tools, and so on. Uh, this will contribute to make those devices smarter and also feel demand for uh, solutions based on artificial intelligence. And uh, if we go uh, even a bit further in the future, uh, I guess we'll also see, uh, we'll begin to see at least the first large-scale use of uh, quantum computing technologies. But uh, how exactly we, this will play out for the wider IT industry, uh, we have no idea yet. It's still uh, a bit too early to tell. Right. Okay, Aurelia, thank you very much. Speak to you next time. Thank you, Maya. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the full report we just spoke about on our website. We'll leave a link in the show notes. If you'd like to discover more of our research, you can also follow the Ludonomics newsletter on LinkedIn. We'll leave a link down below for that too. If you like the podcast, please send it to any of your friends who might like it too, and leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. In the meantime, stay tuned for the next episode.